millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crime and Investigation podcast. My name is Martin Hines, and this time around, we're talking all things literature with distinguished crime author Mark Billingham. Mark, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. A lot of people have been very excited on Facebook and Twitter talking to us about you being on the show. So A lot of people need to get out of the house a bit more, clearly. Do you find that happens? Obviously, you write these crime books. Like, How do you view your audience as fans? Uh, with with enormous gratitude. I mean, it's the great thing about, about social media and email and all that sort of stuff is that anybody that does want to get in touch can get in touch and you can get back to them instantly. You don't have to go, oh, I need to set aside half a day to write my to deal with my correspondence. You just click reply, thanks very much, or reply, sorry you hated it, or whatever it is. Um, but it's very easy to, to maintain a relationship with readers, which is brilliant. Did you have a perception, perhaps, of crime fiction fans before you started writing the books yourself? No, only that I was one, you know, which is which is the basic reason I write it. I mean, I've always been a, a fan of crime fiction um, since I was sort of 12 or 13, and we'll probably talk about this in a bit. Um, so my idea of a crime fiction fan was me, you know, terribly nice, terribly sensible. Um, but, you know, a bit a bit starstruck when I, when I met people that I was a huge fan of. I mean, before I was published, I interviewed Ian Rankin, I interviewed Michael Connolly. You know, these are now friends of mine, uh, which I still can't quite get used to. But, I, you know, I remember interviewing them kind of shaking like a leaf with my sort of notebook and my tape recorder. And um, so, no, I, crime readers are a very good bunch, very loyal bunch, but a demanding bunch. You know, you can't, you can't pull the wool over their eyes, you can't fool them, you can't pass off shoddy goods. Before the crime writing, you've experienced a, a pretty packed career in all sorts of entertainment. It's been a consistent effort to avoid a proper job. <laughs> so where did that start? Tell us about your early life. Well, I was born and brought up in Birmingham and I had quite a good time at school um, once I discovered the school play. 
you know, it was a sort of school where it was very easy to be anonymous unless you were, you know, brilliant academically or fantastic sportsman, and I was neither of those things. So I sort of drifted along quite anonymously until I did my first school play, and suddenly that was a chance to be kind of noticed. The teachers might call you by your first name, and they might take you to the pub after rehearsal if you were lucky. And also it was where you got a chance to meet the girls from the girls' school, quite crucially, because there was a boys' school and a girls' school right next door to each other. But when you did plays, you mixed. So you'd go to these rehearsals in the evening after school. You'd have a chance to go home, get changed, get your fancy duds on. I'd put my flares on, my cheesecloth shirt, and go back to rehearsal and uh, rehearse whatever we were doing, musicals or whatever it was, and uh, and, and get to mingle with, with some of the girls. Um, and, and from that point on, all I wanted to do was be an actor, really, at that stage. And that led me to do a drama degree and, yeah, be an actor for a while. That was all I wanted to do. This is a crime show, so we have to ask, how old were you when you were having beers with the teachers? When, uh, when I had beers with the teachers? Maybe 15. Yeah, crazy. Breaking the law, even back then. So drama was appealing to you and you got into drama school. So was your ambition always, was there anything else in your mind apart from acting? Was that your dead set, I'm going to be an actor and this yeah. is it for me? No, absolutely, that's what it was. Um, and actually, it kind of worked out. I, uh, I finished studying drama and I formed a theatre company. Myself and a bunch of friends formed a, uh, a theatre company. You know, in League of Gentlemen, you know that theatre company Legs Akimbo. We were kind of Legs Akimbo. We were the most right-on uh, sort of socialist touring theatre company, loading our stuff into vans and going up and down the country doing theatre and education shows and community theatre and agitprop and all that stuff. It was great, though. And I did that for about three years and then moved to London, got my equity card, um, did lots of terrible adverts, lots of really predictable TV shows, oddly playing a lot of coppers, uh, ironically, you know, The Bill and Dempsey Makepeace and Juliet Bravo and Crossroads, which is still, <laughs> still, the, you know, the absolute zenith of anybody's career. I did Crossroads. Um, but then it started not being so good and I started spending more time out of work and thinking, sod this for Game of Soldiers. And at that time, kind of alternative comedy was sort of at its peak, late 80s, and I thought, I'll give that a crack. What was it about that generation in the 80s where you had a whole range of intelligent, educated guys turn into comedy to... That gave them an outlet for their own either political or personal views. Well, in my in my case, and actually in the case of several other comics I got to know at the time, it was it was about the fact that all those other professions, um, almost all the creative professions, uh, acting, writing, music, rely to a really strong degree on luck. You know, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't have a, a lucky break, you know, um, or you can have too much bad luck. Whereas comedy is the one thing where basically, if you can do it, you can work. Nobody's looking at comics going, look at the state of him, or, you know, we're all a bunch of kind of funny-looking buggers. Um, and, and we're all a funny-looking... We're a funny bunch. I mean, there is something quite weird about standing on stage going, love me, love me, love me, which is essentially what a lot of comedians are doing. Um, but it was a sort of thing where you could do it, and I started a double act with a friend of mine, and we started, and within six months we were at the comedy store. You know, you could do that then. Uh, not so hard now. It's a much more cutthroat industry, and, it, and it's an industry that's suffering, I think, quite a lot. I think 35% of comedy clubs in London have shut wow. the last couple of years. I, you know, I still see a lot of comics, and they're, they're, they're worrying a bit, you know. Um, but that's essentially why I moved into comedy, because I could do it and I could make a living. Do you think writing is, is pretty much the same as comedy and that so many people think they can do it? How many people do you meet you say, I've got a novel in me or I've got, I've got an hour's worth of stand-up in me and they never do it? So yeah. is it simply a case of, of actually just getting down and doing it? It's getting down and doing it and it's getting down and finishing it. 
that's really important. You know, writers finish things. So many people start something and they write, you know, 50 pages and then they lose faith or they lose hope because they can't find an agent who wants it. And it goes under the bed and just goes yellow, you know. You do have to finish and then get on to the next thing. And, yeah, you need that perseverance. You need to work hard and be lucky. And, you know, published writers are just unpublished writers who didn't give up. The nineties approach, and you in a very popular BBC TV show that a lot of kids will remember of that of that era called Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. Tell us about that. Oh, best job I ever had with that shadow of a doubt. Well, actually, it's a show that's essentially responsible for me being a writer. Um, I just went up for it when I was a jobbing actor uh, to play this character Gary, who was one of the sheriff of Nottingham's henchmen. Sheriff of Nottingham, played by Tony Robinson, who created the show, and I got the job, and it was just brilliant. Had a glorious summer running around in Somerset with a big sword. And, uh, you know, one series became two and three and four and a Christmas special and we did a musical and it was a hugely successful show, the sort of show that you don't get anymore because, you know, the BBC just don't make shows like that anymore. They, we built, we built, I want to say we, I didn't get involved in the building, but, you know, an entire village in the middle of this forest, you know, and it, was, and it had a good budget and, and a great cast. Um, but towards the end of, I think, the third series, Tony was, like, you know, stupidly busy doing all the, all the other stuff he does. And he knew I wrote and said, do you want to get involved in, in storylining this and then writing an episode? And when the show finally finished, by default, I'd become a television writer, just kind of accidentally. And I, I inherited an agent. I had a, suddenly had an agent. And I was writing for television. So that was then the sort of next phase of my career. I was doing stand-up, writing for television but not enjoying the writing of television at all. It's a, it's a horrible job, really horrible job. That's interesting. A lot of people think it's a, it's a dream job, right? You get to be around your heroes, you get to <laughs> come up with all these cool ideas. What, what's the reality of writing for television? The reality, at its best, it's a collaborative experience. It has to be hugely collaborative. Of course it does. And when that works, it's terrific. When it doesn't, it's writing by committee. And it's really, really hard. I was working on a lot of things like uh, animation, shows for the Cartoon Network, that kind of thing, where there'd be money from half a dozen different European countries. So you'd end up having notes coming from half a dozen, you know, European countries, notes that conflicted with one another. You know, you'd be on draft 13 and they'd go, can you put back that stuff you took out of draft two? And eventually you'd go, do you know what, this is... This is an awful lot of work for a half-hour cartoon. Um, so, yeah, it was all right for a while, but I, I started to get rapidly disenchanted with it um, and thought, you know, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> the book eventually happened, but in 1997, something quite significant happened to you that yeah. changed the whole course, not just of your career, but I guess your life as well. Yeah, to a degree. Um, I was back, this was back when I was writing television, I was writing a show um, up in Manchester and I was staying in a hotel in Manchester because we were working on the show. Um, which was I was also in. Um, and uh, my partner at that time, writing partner at that time, um, I said, look, we need to talk about the tomorrow's filming, so listen, what, come over to my room and we'll you know, order room service and we'll look at the script and whatever it was. And he came around and we ordered, I remember what it was, pizza and a beer for a fiver. That was the deal they did, which I thought was pretty good. Bargain. Pretty good. So he came around and we ordered the pizza and beer and we ate it and then half an hour later there was a knock on the door and I thought, oh, that's, you know, room service come to collect the tray and, the, and it was three guys in balaclavas and they burst in and beat us up and told us they were going to kill us and down on the floor with bags over our heads and they tied us up and yeah I was in there for about three hours by the end of it because this happened I guess at about half past nine and they wanted to use the uh, our ATM cards either side of midnight so they could get two days worth of money wow smart thinking um so yeah we were we were lying there tied up for about three hours not knowing if what they were going to do when it was finished that was the worst bit you know and um about a year later when I was writing the first book, 
Um, the two things I very much wanted to do were to write from the victim's point of view. Uh, you know, I'd read a lot of crime novels, and I still read a lot of crime novels where you have a cop and a killer, and, you know, the victim or victims are just plot devices. Mm. You know, you don't get to engage with them or, or empathise with them. They're just, you know, victim one, victim 12. And I thought, no, no, these, you know, the victims are going to be major characters in the books. And, and the victim was the major character, actually, in the first book. Um, and also I thought, I, I think I'm pretty good now at writing about fear. And not, not you know, being on a roller coaster afraid or watching a scary movie afraid, but am I going to see my wife and kids again afraid? And, I, and it did affect me for a while. I mean, actually, back then I was still doing some stand-up and staying in a lot of hotels. And, you know, to this day I'm a little bit wary in a hotel. When there's a knock on the door going, you know, come to turn your bed down, I'm like, slide your ID under the door. I don't, I don't care who you say you are. It did make me a bit jumpy for a while, yeah. What made you decide to write crime novels in particular? You've always written, uh, but but why crime novels in particular? When it, when it got down to writing a novel, it was always going to be crime. Uh, you know, I said earlier I'd been fairly obsessed with crime fiction since an early age, since about 13, when, you know, we had a teacher who used to read a Sherlock Holmes stories, and I just thought, this is fantastic. Um, and I read pretty much everything I could get hold of. So, you know, by the time I was a student, I was reading Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and all the Americans, and then reading all the UK writers and, you know, finding it very hard to read anything that didn't have a murder in it or at least a car chase um and so crime was my passion and i was reading passionately collecting crime novels passionately so i started kind of hanging around the fringes of the crime fiction world you know i would go to festivals and and conferences i would interview writers uh, write reviews essentially to get free books um and the only thing I hadn't done, you know, the missing piece of the jigsaw was to actually write a novel. And I'd written, as you said, pretty much everything else by then. You know, TV programmes and, and stand-up and terrible poetry and, you know, whatever else. But I thought, a novel? You're kidding. You know, they're like house bricks. How much work is that? And then I started writing one on, on a fortnight's holiday with the family. And by the end of it, I'd got 30,000 words. And I thought, hang on a minute, that's about a third of a novel. You know, maybe it's not as impossible as I thought it was. And those 30,000 words got me my book deal. Is it true that you're also inspired by Columbo, the TV detective? How couldn't you be? Still the greatest TV programme of all time. Um, no, I loved Columbo. I mean, I'm every bit as inspired, I think, by things I watched on TV as anything I ever read. And, uh, God, I never missed Columbo. And I got a chance to interview him a few years ago. Wow. Peter Folk before he died and uh, did, made a documentary about Columbo, which was just an incredible show. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know, just the people that worked on that show, Spielberg directed the pilot for Columbo. Um, and it was a unique show. You know, it just went, we're going to do this the other way around. We're going to show you in the first 20 minutes who the killer is, how they did it. Then in will come the shambling cop who the killer will mistake for being a bit of a, you know, working stiff, brainless working stiff, but he doesn't know this guy's got a mind like a steel trap and there's going to be this dance of death between them. It's a beautiful show. And, uh, you know, whatever happens to me in my life, I have on record, I have a recording of Peter Falk going, right, Mr. Billingham, just one more thing. And so I can die a happy man. For you, when you talk to your fans and when you read things and all those sort of things, what is it about crime that makes people so interested? Here at Crime Investigation, we focus on true crime, yeah. but also crime fiction is the most popular genre in, in the UK in, in terms of in terms of books. Why are people so fascinated with true, true and you know other forms of crime? Well, I mean, essentially, you know, we as a society get the crime we deserve, and I think it's it crime will always be fascinating to us, um, whether it's on television or whether it's in books. It's an enormous umbrella. You know, if you if your tastes run towards the cosy and you want crime that where all the or everything's tied up in a nice neat bow at the end and there are no grey areas and maybe there's even a cat involved or a vicarage, 
that's there for you. If you like historical stuff, that's there. You want foreign stuff, Scandinavian stuff. If you want stuff that's very dark and gritty and disturbing and actually maybe is kind of socio-political in its outlook, that's out there as well. It's an enormous umbrella of crime fiction. You see it when you go into one of these uh, mystery bookstores in America where the whole store is divided into these categories, you know, dog mysteries, cooking mysteries, dog and cooking mysteries, travel mysteries, real estate mysteries, golf mysteries. It's extraordinary. For anyone who's not read your books, how would you describe your own style? Uh, it's about golf and cats. <laughs> I think I was when I started, I wanted to write, obviously, British set crime fiction. I couldn't do anything else. But with what I perceived at the time to be kind of an American sense of pace, um, all the American writers I enjoyed and still enjoy really just are so elegant and don't waste a word and the story cracks on, you know. Um, so now it's, diff it's difficult to say. I'm, I'm 14, 15 books into one series with one character, and so I kind of know those characters now and feel comfortable writing about them. Um, but I also enjoy writing standalones to take a break. They're, they're towards the dark end of the scale, no question. Um, but I hope there's humour there in as well. I think there has to be humour in, in anything. I can't, I can't read a book, however dark the subject matter is, without some humour, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's irredeemably bleak. How can... How can you, you stand to read 400 pages without, without a joke somewhere? Because life's not like that. Yeah. You know, the, strength, the funniest things can happen at the darkest moments. Um, so it's fun to, to mix the mood up. But, yeah, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a working commercial writer. I write a book a year and, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in an ongoing series. And I'm trying to write as entertaining a story as I can. It's a performance. I very much think writing a novel is, you know, it's a different kind of performance to the ones I've, I've done in the past, but it's still a performance. Your central character in many of the books is Tom Thorne, yes. who is pff, an intriguing, captivating character to a lot of people. Have you ever met fans who maybe know more about Tom than you know yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they send me, you know, they send me CDs of music they think he would like. Um, they, you know, there's the occasional proposal of marriage, which is a bit odd. Um, and they, they, they are involved in his life. They'll go, I don't think he should be with that person. He needs to dump that person. He needs to dump Louise and take up with Helen, or he needs to dump Helen and take up with somebody else. He needs to dump Helen and own up to his true character and settle down with Phil. I mean, I get the most <laughs> extraordinary uh, kind of emails and suggestions. Um, but that's great. That's great because, it, you know, your character is proving to be engaging to at least some people and that's all you can hope for really you must have been asked this question so many times so when you come up with a new book especially when it's part of a series yeah. are you aware of the entire plot and concept before you start or is it an ongoing thing god no i'm i'm ten thousand words into next year's book and i've really no clue where it's going is that exciting um, <laughs> I, I couldn't do it any other way yeah um I have a kind of opening, you know, I have an opening that's almost like a pre-title sequence and I think, yeah, this will do. There's a lot of questions at the end of this. I don't know the answers to those questions, so hopefully the reader might want to find out too. And I just sort of see where it goes. Once I've been going for a while, I do kind of then see an end in sight, but I've still got no idea how I'm going to get there. You ask 100 writers, you get 100 different answers to that. I know plenty of writers who plan it out to the nth degree, who, if you look at their writing year, 10 months of it will be planning and then two months of it will be writing. I, I can't do that. Um, there's no fun writing it if you plan it all out. Is there a recurring theme around amongst successful authors just discipline? It could be a different type of discipline, i.e. just physically writing a chapter or, or yeah. planning something. But we take George R. R. Martin, for example, who at the Game of Thrones yeah. author, and a lot of people are very frustrated with him at the moment because he's <laughs> taken a little while. Come to, on, George. He's taken a while to write his books. From your perspective, he's writing just a matter of discipline. He, absolutely it is, but it's not... It's not nine to five. It's not sit in the chair at nine, write till 11, have a sandwich, sit down again at 12. Sometimes I won't write for a week or two, 
but you but the books in your head all the time the books in your head when you're going around the supermarket or walking the dog you know you're you're working stuff out you're you're thinking things through so it's not a matter of set hours or anything like that but i deliver a book every year so I, there's this kind of annual disciplinary kind of <laughs> uh process going on but it's but it's not regular because you have to set aside time within your year for touring and events and promoting the book you wrote the previous year and yeah. stuff like this and doing bits of telly and stuff so but it gets done one of our fans on twitter wanted to know she said and this may be a theory that tom was into different music in earlier books oh, Is this she true? does know more about him than most people yeah i i did a very stupid thing in that first book I'm a big fan of country music, but I thought, no, it's too easy. I can't, he can't like the same music I do. So I gave him stupidly, I think what I called a penchant for trip, hop and speed garage. <laughs> so he would be going into branches of Tower, Rec of Tower Records and Piccadilly Circus, as was, uh, you know, and buying these sort of uh, speed garage records. And there would be, you know, amusing exchanges with, with 16-year-old shop staff who went, oh, is this for, your, this for your son and all that kind of stuff. And I realised that I was making life so hard for myself. I was having to do all this research into this music that I didn't like myself. And and I just quietly dropped it and hoped no one would notice. Clearly, somebody has. Um, and from that point on, it was just country. You know, I mean, as a crime writer, you do have to do a fair bit of research into all sorts of strange stuff. The last thing I want to waste my time doing is researching the music. That's easy. I'm listening to George Jones. Tom's listening to George Jones. It's, uh, it's not hard. After writing novels, you've been involved in a lot of different crimey stuff. I should hasten not not committing them, but, but talk, <laughs> talking about them. No, no. There was an early bout of shoplifting, but we'll, we'll skip over that. How's that been for you when you were approached? You did a show with the Crime Investigation a couple of years I ago. I right? So how is it for you when people say, all right, Mark, you're now an expert on all things crime. Come and talk about it. Well, people do tend to think that. I mean, one of the things I get, and I know a lot of other crime writers get this, is you will get correspondence from uh, members of the public who've been involved in a, a horrible crime, perhaps a relative has been killed or something and they go here i want you to write about this and you go and you have to very politely go well yeah i'm really sorry this is awful but i'm not a journalist you know you need to find a journalist if you think you've got a story to tell or tell it yourself my job is making stuff up um and they do tend to think you're an expert on you know whatever whatever there you know if there's a subtext in your book you know, I wrote a book that was largely set amongst the homeless community in, in London called Lifeless a few years ago. And I was being, you know, dragged out onto, onto radio and TV shows to talk about homelessness in London, of which I had found out quite a lot in the course of researching the books, but I'm not an expert on it. It was something I need to find out about for one book. Um, and, that, and that will happen every couple of years if you, if you write about something specific. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually an expert in nothing other than, other than making stuff up. As a best-selling author, do you find that... Is that a nice ring when people call you that? Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm now no longer being called a new author, which is a little <laughs> bit sad. You know, one of the new kids on the block or a young buck or something, I realise that's... You know, when I see new authors publishing books and they're 21, it's a little bit dispiriting. As an, esta <laughs> as an established best-selling author... OK, thank you. Do you find that sometimes you're maybe a gateway into crime writing, people who maybe haven't read crime fiction before get into your work first? Well, somebody... I mean, you know, somebody always has to be the first author that somebody discovers. You know, like I say, for me, it was Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, not that he, he, he needed a readership. Um, what, what, the, you know, you get reviews, some are good, some are bad. You get your placing in the bestseller list, all that stuff. But actually, nothing genuinely beats getting an email from somebody that said, I haven't read anything 20 years or I haven't read anything since school. And, you know, I found your book in a holiday chalet or, you know, somebody gave it me and, and I really loved it and I finished it and I'm going to start reading more books. That's brilliant. 
that's a fantastic thing. I mean, I'm currently involved in a campaign called Quick Reads, which is uh, a campaign aimed, aimed at people who's, who don't have great literacy skills. Um, and the books are very short. And they don't use you know, over complex sentences or stupidly long words, and and they're there to basically say to people, look, you can read and you can enjoy this story, and um, you know uh, that's very important in this day and age when libraries are shutting right, left, and centre, and you know something ridiculous like ten percent of of homes in the UK don't own a single book, um, which I always find astonishing. I mean, I do meet people who who look at you and say, I don't read. They say it kind of proudly, like it's you know I've just learned to swim. I don't read, and I get that it's you know time-consuming and people have busy lives, but these days when you can read on a on a phone or a tablet or, you know, read read 10 pages before you go to bed at night, whatever. I mean, I'm not saying you have to. It's not like the law, but it's, uh, it's just such a brilliant thing. Have you noticed a more serious increase in true crime uh, fandom recently? There's been a lot of shows, i.e. Making a Murderer or yeah. Serial Podcast. There's been a lot of kind of almost artisan shows about true crime. Has that translated into into the fiction world as well? Um, well, I think one of the things that's, that's changed over recent years uh, is that true crime has become more respectable, should I say. Um, you know, there was a day when most true crime books, for example, books I'm talking now, were terrible, were terrible, trashy things. They would literally appear on the on the newsstand, you know, the week a, a trial finished. Um, they'd be knocked together and they'd have this horrible, gratuitous cover. Um, people still loved them, nothing wrong with that, but uh, I think these days the, the, the level of kind of journalism involved in that sort of stuff has got a lot better. And I think the same thing is true on TV when you have shows like Making a Murderer, that, that are sort of serious examinations of, of true crime and not just a cheap bit of cashing in. Um, it's, it's become, you know, a much more, a much more respectable and, and enjoyable genre, I think. Yeah, especially on crime investigation, we've had Webby Coltrane's critical evidence recently yeah. and Cold Case Files coming up yeah. is, is a really interesting analytical look at, at crimes that have been solved. Well, when areas. you do watch you get involved in true crime, and I've, and I've had it when I've been presenting some of the shows you talked about, um, you realise that actually there is nothing we can make up as fiction writers that's as, as strange and weird as the stuff that really happens. And, you know, it's one thing making stuff up. When I was doing that, that crime for that, that show for Crime Investigation, one of the, one of the cases I covered was, was the Moors murders. Um, and during the course of making that show, Ian Brady wrote to me from prison. And I can make up all these fictional serial killers, and I have done it, but suddenly having a letter from Ian Brady in my hand um, was really a sobering thing. My wife didn't want to have it in the house. She said, destroy it, destroy it. It was kind of interesting to suddenly be confronted by the real thing. What was in the letter? How, how did he get in contact with you? How do you know what was happening? Well, because we were making the programme. Yeah. The programme makers uh, contacted him in prison. Um, I don't think they ever thought for a minute we'd get an interview with him. Um, but he somehow found out about it and, and wrote to me, you know, care of the programme. And he wanted to tell me how clever he was. Mm. He wanted to tell me how hard it was from in prison. And I'm like, well, duh. Um... And it was very odd. One thing I remember, the handwriting was extremely, extremely small, extremely close together, and we had a kind of forensic psychiatrist working as an advisor on the show, and he said, even if I didn't know who that letter was from, I could tell you that, you know, that person has, should we say, issues to be polite. Has that ever taken influence? Not, not, not that specific example, but has there ever been true crime things you've seen that you've wanted to kind of put into your, into your books? Well, yes, the problem with putting big nut, big stuff big front page stuff is a dozen other writers will be doing it 
Um, or maybe a dozen other writers will think, I can't do that because it does, it's something yeah. you should be doing. But, but they're, it, it, they're rarely the fascinating ones. It's the ones, the little stories tucked away on page seven of a newspaper, a little paragraph, and you read it and go, eh? What the, you know. But when a big story does happen, you know, a big, horrible, tragic story, you know, Jamie Bulger or the Soham murders or something like that, something is in the air for a while after that. And you'll find two or three la- years later, books start to appear that that engage with similar themes, shall we say. Um, so without directly taking a particular case as an inspiration, just seeing the sort of thing that happens can affect what you write a year or two down the line, definitely. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Of all the books you've written, and we're approaching almost 20 years now of being a novelist, is there one in particular you're most proud of? There are two answers, really. One which is always the last one, because you you like to think you're getting better. You have this kind of hope that you're getting better, and you're always trying to write a better book. I mean, that is why it gets harder, because you're trying to write a better book, or you bloody well should be. Um, of course, you can't. It won't always be a better book. It's not possible. But you, so you, you know, and it's the one that's in your head. It's the one that's in your head, and you think, yeah, I'm quite pleased with that, until six months later you're in the studio recording the audio book, and you go, oh, this is terrible. Um... And, and there'll always be a, a, a place in my heart for the first book, Sleepyhead, because even though I'd go back and rewrite it in a heartbeat if I got the chance, um, it's the one that got me published, it's the one that got me into the top ten, it's you know, it's a very special book, and it was the one that um, they filmed when, when there was a TV series, and um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a book I'm still very fond of. There is a new book coming? There is. Love Like Blood? Yeah. Tell us about it. Ooh, now this is... Uh, Love Like Blood is... It's a Tom Thorne novel, because the last one wasn't. was a standalone novel called Die of Shame. So Thorne is back, and he is investigating a series of honour killings. It's for, It was a very um, tricky and, and tough book to write, actually, and I, I can honestly say I've never felt angrier writing a book. You know, the research I needed to do for this has made me um, furious. I mean, it's just just a horrible, horrible business. Um... So I was writing books set in in communities that are not mine and I had to do a lot of um, research and talking to people and that kind of stuff. It's a book I'm very proud of. Uh, it's a book that might, I don't know, might be controversial. I don't know. It's not for me to say. It's, it's, a, it's a thriller. You know, Thorne is still trying to catch a killer at the end of the day, but, but the, as a background, a backdrop to the book is, is the business of honour killing and also it's very much a sort of post-Brexit book, I think, even though we said we won't talk about Brexit. I've brought it up now. Um, because one of the things it takes as a kind of bubbling theme throughout it is the huge increase in hate crime. You know, my my central character is somebody who investigates crime and there's been nearly 45% hate crime in London since Brexit. How can I not write about that? How can crime writers not engage with what is really happening? You know, we can't always be chasing serial killers who kill because the moon is full. However many copies those books might sell, they're not real. There aren't too many serial killers running about, but sometimes you have to engage with stuff that's really happening. Is that ever a battle for you in terms of... You're incredibly popular author as it is, but is there ever a temptation to to write about something a bit more 
you know, superficial? Um, if there is, I hope I'm strong enough to resist it. Um, you know, I know, I, I, you know, I'm not. I have done that in the past. I, you know, I, I remember writing the first three books and thinking at the end of them, do you know what? These three books are all a bit samey. These are getting a bit samey. And I wrote a fourth book that was deliberately very different. And the first review said, "What a shame! Billingham has changed a winning formula." <laughs> I can remember seeing that, and thinking, "Well, that's, that's why I changed it because it was a formula. You don't, you don't ever want to be formulaic. You don't want to be predictable. You don't want your character to be predictable." So every so often you've just got to shake things up and do something different. This next book is very different for me. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm, very, I'm excited about it, whatever happens. So away from the books, away from writing, what, what are you currently enjoying doing in life? I'm currently enjoying, I'm currently enjoying writing songs. I, um, I spent a lot of last year on the road with a, with a country and western band called My Darling Clementine. I wrote a show with them. I wrote a story based around some of their songs and we, we toured it. We made an album, which was incredibly exciting. Um, with you know guest musicians like Graham Parker and the Brodsky Quartet, and um, we toured that show round, and I started to get a taste for well, I've always had a bit of a taste for for singing again, and uh, and so now I'm writing serious songs and and making demos, and um, not for me, not for me to sing. I mean, I, I sing the demos, but you know, ultimately, I want proper people to record them. So I, yeah, I'm having a bit of fun doing that and playing far too much poker, and sadly supporting my struggling football team and. Trying to write the next book. <laughs> Has there ever been a temptation to set one of your novels in, in Nashville, perhaps, or somewhere that's big country music? <laughs> well, just so I can write it off as a tax yeah. expense when I have to go on a research trip. No, I mean, um, I wrote one book that was partly set in America a few years ago, and there was part of one book that was largely set in Spain. But aside from that, they've always been set here. Um, it, they, they rarely tend to work, those books, those fish-out-of-water books. You know, um, Having said that, I did get to go last year on that trip of a lifetime for me which I've fantasised about for years you know New Orleans to Memphis to Nashville you know just driving and, and getting to go to the Country Music Hall of Fame and the George Jones Museum and the Graceland and all that so I've got all that out of my system my midlife crisis <laughs> boys trip across America Lastly all the comedy you've you performed in your yeah. life and all the stuff you've written has that ever juxtaposed with the crime because I, I find that's a really interesting comparison between the two very different industries but in a way that they're actually quite similar I guess Oh yeah yeah, yeah, you're spot on. I mean, uh, it took me a while to figure that out. And there was a while I was doing both things. I mean, I stopped doing stand-up completely about six years ago, but there was a time I was doing both. And, and it started to strike me how similar a crime novel was to a joke, you know, in t just in terms of the way they're structured. You know, you have to engage the audience very quickly. I come out on stage as a stand-up. I've got to get a laugh really quickly. I can't go, stay with me, I'll get funny in ten minutes. You know, I'm going to get bottled off. Um, with a book, you've got to engage the reader very quickly or they'll give up after 50 pages or 20 pages. Um, and it's all about when you reveal information. It's all about timing. Books are full of punchlines. They're just very dark punchlines. You know, crime fiction is structured very similarly to the way a comedian puts a joke together. Um, and I just think also that, that, that time spent performing has stood me in good stead in terms of trying to, to perform both in the book itself and when I'm on stage at some festival, you know, shamelessly trying to pimp it you know you can't you can't get up on a stage and 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 mumble and stumble and you've got to read well you've got to you know sell yourself increasingly authors have to sell themselves as well as their books and give a paying audience a, a good show i mean in recent years i've been putting shows together for literary events as well with other writers like my friend chris brookmeyer we're, we're going on a little mini tour again in june um again doing a show that isn't the kind of thing you would normally see at a literary festival it's much ruder much funnier um lots of tales told out of school you know at the end we might wave the book in the air but that's about the only 
sign you get, we're actually there to promote a book. We just want to have some fun, you know. Because if you have fun on stage, your audience will. That's the theory, anyway. Last question. You're a two-time Crime Novel of the Year award winner. Yeah. You're the only, the only person I believe. No, no, Denise Minor won it. She did even better. She won it two years running. It still counts. It still, it still counts. counts. Uh, as somebody who shares that accolade, yeah. is there one crime novel in particular, not of yours, sadly, that you would recommend someone to read? If anyone's listening to this, like we say, who perhaps hasn't read that much or perhaps has an interest in crime but hasn't translated to literature, what's the one book you'd recommend they read? Uh, my favourite crime novel of all time is The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. It's whatever it is, 80 years old, still fabulous. Not a long book. You can read it very quickly. Um, absolutely brilliant. If you want to read some more contemporary crime fiction, my big discovery has been a writer called Mick Heron, uh, who writes this series of novels about a character called Jackson Lamb. The first one is Dead Lions. Uh, I'm sorry, the first one is Slow Horses. Read those books. You will not be disappointed. It's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you for having me. If people want to get in touch with you, say hello or, or read your books, where can people get they in touch? They can find me on Twitter, always lurking about on Twitter, at Mark Billingham, or they can contact me at my website, mail at markbillingham.com, and tell me off for anything they want. Thanks so much. Thank you. Again, thank you very much to Mark for coming on the show. If you liked it or you've got any recommendations for books of your own, get in touch. We're on Twitter at CI or Facebook at CI UK. And let me tell you this, there are so many amazing shows coming up on our channel over the next couple of months. You don't want to miss any of them. But for now, the Crime Investigation podcast is over. Until next time, stay curious. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.